Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. Matt Downing. And I'm Janine Dunn. And you're listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks for joining us. We are in one of our episodes on teacher preparation programs, and we're hanging out with two awesome guys, Eric Sarb and Andy Elkaras. Eric, Andy, how y'all doing this evening? Thank you for joining us. We'll get into why you're here. But let's start with Eric. Um, you know, we transitioned to Zoom in the middle of our recording process, and Eric uh, shows up strong with a bow tie. Um, Eric, give us give us the deets. Like, what's with the bow tie, and how you feeling? Hey, doing well. Um, I can't remember exactly who, but it was another TFA core member in my grad school program was wearing a bow tie, and I was like, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, it's bow tie Tuesday. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I wear it every Tuesday, like spread it around. So I've been wearing bow ties pretty much every Tuesday for the last 10 years uh, since I was in the classroom and trying to spread that uh, wherever it will go and anyone who will wear a bow tie on Tuesday. So it happens to be Tuesday when this is being recorded. Right on, right on. Yeah, and so for listeners out there, Eric's got a nice paisley bow tie, some purples, some reds, a little bit of blues going on there. And if you're feeling so inclined, we would love for you to wear your bow tie on Tuesday and share that love with all your people. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Andy Alcaraz, thank you for joining us as well. What's happening this fine evening? How you feeling? I'm good, I'm happy to be here. Um... Yeah, I don't have anything as fancy as a bow tie. I'm actually wearing a yellow beanie because it's freezing in my house and like looking it's good. just really cold and I don't want to turn on the heat, so I'd rather just put on some layers. Um, but so I'm freezing, but I'm feeling I'm feeling good and I'm really happy to be here. Right on. Yeah, yeah, you're warmed by the the heart of this uh, conversation. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so. Andy and Eric, uh, we asked you all to join us in this conversation because um, this episode, we're going to focus on Teach for America. And Eric, you mentioned earlier about being a TFA alum in grad school, part of a cohort, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to ask you all to expand on that a little bit. And in this whole series on teacher preparation programs, I think Janine and Matt and I have talked quite a bit about how Teach for America has impacted preparation for teachers. And we've talked about it in both, I would say, negative, positive, and, and some sort of like neutral ways, right? And we're hoping to get a little bit of more insider knowledge from past Teach for America alums, um, or I guess current Teach for America alums, past cohort members, and just to give us some insight as to what their experience was like and hopefully help us think a little bit more deeply about how Teach for America might be impacting the teacher preparation process. I would also say that part of this conversation is coming in the midst of a sort of crazy time for teachers, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into this episode a bit more. But every day I look on Twitter, I know I shouldn't doom scroll. Matt tells me not to all the time. But every time I look on Twitter these days, it's like, just quit teaching just left the classroom, just whatever. And it's just constant stream of individuals saying, I'm not trying to deal with this anymore. And that's a problem. And Teach for America is designed to sort of address that. And we're hopefully going to hear from Andy and Eric about 
their experience and what their thoughts are about TFA. So let's get into it. Let's start with Eric. Eric, give us a little bit of background on your experience with TFA. So where did you serve? What capacity, what grades you teach, subjects, all that sort of like uh, logistical information. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I kind of want to start even just before that, um, which was that at Michigan sure. State, um, also your alma mater. Go crazy. Jinx. Go green. Um, I was studying urban planning. <laughs> I was super, super passionate about it. I started getting emails from TFA, you know, maybe late junior year, early senior year. And I was like, this is, you know, not something I'm interested in. I'm interested in urban planning. I was getting some experience with it. Um, and so, you know, I finally took a meeting with the recruiter just so they'd stop emailing me. Um, they had their way with words, uh, convinced me of the importance of it. Um, and I said, okay, I can do this for, for two years, you know, and then go be an urban planner. I think that was actually like a talk track that my recruiter used. Um, definitely uh, put Detroit as my number one, thinking I'd get it, but got placed in Chicago um, due to their algorithm or however uh, that worked and uh, became a middle school science teacher um, in Chicago. So it was not part of my plan. I thought I was going to teach math uh, in Detroit, but uh, went where I was placed. So you studied urban planning and you ended up teaching science in middle school in Chicago. That's right. Yeah. So definitely quite okay. a change. They ended up coinciding <laughs> uh, with some of my science curriculum, but maybe more to come on that later. Okay. Okay. Right on, right on. Okay. Let's kick it over to Andy. Andy, give us a little bit of background. Where did you serve? What capacity? What grade subjects? Any sort of logistical information that's helpful here? So... Um... I studied English literature in college, um, and then uh, when I joined the Corps, I was an English teacher uh, in Chicago. So I taught at a charter school, high school, and I taught grades 9, 10, and 11. And I actually taught, I taught reading my first year, and then I taught um, the ELA class um, my second year. So what the first year was teaching a reading elective, and then the second year was like the core English class for, for students uh, in ninth grade. Right on. And Andy, just to, as a follow-up to that, um, what was your teaching load like as a core member, especially in your first year? Was it just typical teaching load um, as other like uh, teachers in the school had, or did you have a lighter load or what was that like? Yeah, no, I, I definitely had, I think the biggest load in terms of like students. Um, I taught, since it wasn't a core English class, it was a, it was a reading elective. I taught every ninth grade, 10th grade and 11th grade student in that school for 45 minutes. 45 minute blocks on alternating days. So you'd see. So I got well acquainted with literally almost every single student my first yeah, year. Yeah. Okay. And Eric, what about for you? What was your teaching mode like? Yeah. So I guess there were a few details I left out there. Um, <laughs> I ended up getting placed in a traditional Chicago public school, um, teaching just sixth grade science. Uh, so I had a hundred students that I saw every day, um, three classes and was teaching uh, just earth science. Right on. Okay. I have to say that like, um, just hearing that makes me cringe about 45 minute classes and uh, so many students. That's not really what we do here at Eagle Rock where I teach. But I would also say that that's not that dissimilar from a first year teacher's experience, right? Teaching many students, lots of sections, potentially. In, in Eric's case, it sounds just like one prep, which is not so bad. 
Um, but uh, Andy, that's a quite a load of different kinds of students. It was 12, 12, 12 prep to be precise. And I think around 500 students was my, was my total my first year. What? And, and I, and I wasn't given uh, a curriculum. I, I had to create my own curriculum as well. We, we can, I, I could talk for days just about like that experience and hope I'll get into some of it, but like at a high level, that's, that's like what my first year was, which is crazy. Yeah. On that note, I was given um, enough textbooks. Uh, there was a fully prepped and planned inquiry-based earth science curriculum, um, actually out of, uh, I think, Berkeley, Lawrence Hall of Science, uh, with all of the lab materials uh, prepared. So um, quite a different experience there as well. Oh, I'm forgetting one crucial detail too. So my classroom was the library. So it was like uh, the library of our building. And it was that being the case, since there was like bookshelves everywhere, we were actually kind of condensed a little bit more. And so be, basically the the average class size that I had, I think was like 38 and all 38 students could not fit in that classroom so we actually removed the desks so there were no desks and every student had a stool and a clipboard with a pen as their like setup for that class so you can just imagine rows of of stools and clipboards in like this crowded ass like mini library room that's just absurd for a first year teacher yeah that sounds brutal I just have to say, yeah. And Andy, just to go off that, was your, um, when you were studying English literature in college, were you thinking about becoming a teacher at that point? Like had education entered a, the track um, or path of your mind? And this kind of gets into my, into my next question, but I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I don't think teaching had like really, uh, that's not true. So I had like toyed around with the idea of becoming a teacher because like you know, studying English lit, I fancied myself a writer and I was like, I'm going to be like a struggling author, but maybe in the meantime, I'll like teach or something. Right. So um, I had always thought about that route. But then um, when I heard like the pitch uh, as an undergrad for like TFA talking about like, um, you know, uh, social justice and education inequality, and that made me reflect on my own public school experience. And I had a terrible public school experience in LAUSD and I was like oh that like I guess teaching could be a way for me to like you know work towards educational equity and you know TFA was saying like all of the right sound bites that resonated with with me and so I was like oh let me like entertain this seriously and then I just ended up pulling the trigger on it. Right on right on interesting so uh, that kind of leads me into my next question which is about how TFA kind of finds the people to um, go through their program, right? And I think this is possibly one of the areas that TFA has the most controversy around. Particularly early on, TFA was founded as this organization to right, uh, take high-performing college students and place them for two years in really struggling schools with the idea that these individuals in college were known to get results in their grades. They were pursuing goals, working hard, sort of all of the things that you would hope teachers would be. And to then place them with some training and support in um, a school would be of great benefit to young people, even if it was 
only for two years. And so I'm wondering, um, maybe let's go over to Eric first, how this kind of philosophy of bringing along this certain kind of college student into a struggling, you know, typically urban school, how that impacted your experience? Yeah, I think you summarized it pretty well uh, in terms of like what the founding um, vision was for the program. And, and that's how they got a hold of me. I was the president of the Urban and Regional Student Planning Association. So I was probably on some sort of list that they were then using for recruiting. Um, so in terms of how that informed like my experience in the classroom, I definitely, um, you know, some of those qualities that they say that they're recruiting for um, in terms of, you know, trying to make uh, whatever situation you find yourself in, um, you know, work and being resilient and, um, you know, just having deep care, I guess, um, does, did really help me, uh, when I was in the classroom, um, you know, like in terms of those leadership qualities, like that is essentially what a classroom teacher is. Um, so I would say some of those, those qualities translated pretty well. Right on. And Andy, what about for you? Yeah, you know, your question, it make, I'm going to like pivot in a slightly different direction, but I feel like um, the philosophy that TFA is founded on, or at least was presenting when I was a core member and being recruited for a core member is, I kind of find it like semi-problematic now reflecting on it because like one is if you're going to take some high-performing, you know, if, if, if the pitches high-performing students to be super resourceful in low low resource and low income public schools. One, like, you know, you're already kind of entering the space with like a savior mentality, which is not like, which is not the best to like walk in on, like walk in on into a public school like interface. And then the other piece is it kind of expects teachers to pick up a lot of like to do everything and to go above and beyond, which I think in some ways can kind of be damaging to the profession, right? Because you're you're kind of preaching make do with being resourceful instead of like fighting for the actual resources to begin with and like making that not be the case. So in some ways, I think, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a flawed premise that I only like, you know, have the nuance of to, to talk about it in hindsight, but like back then, I, you know, it, none of these things are really like resonant with me or at top of, top of mind for myself. Yeah. And I would just agree with all of that and the times in which I eventually distanced myself from the program kind of philosophically was when I was starting to reflect on those things, which was also part of my, I think a result of my experience being in the Chicago teachers union, um, which is, very clearly uh, opposed to Teach for America and, and starting to reflect on situationally where Teach for America lands in the larger like education um, system. Yeah, and Eric, you you say being part of the Chicago Teachers Union, I should I should ask, was your path through Teach for America two years in the core, and then did you serve as a teacher for years after that? Yeah, so um, Teach for America requires a two year commitment. Um, you are hired on by your school. Um, so, you know, you're not being paid by TFA. And so I ended up spending four years at my placement school um, in Chicago public schools. Yeah, and then I spent two years teaching um, at a charter school in San Francisco uh, before leaving the classroom after considerable burnout. 
Yeah. 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 Andy, what about you? So you spent two years in Chicago or did you, did you finish your second year in TFA? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I only did the two years for the, the commitment. And then I was out like, honestly, you know, I, that was like a big turning point for me and it's like a big decision. Cause I remember I obviously like had it not obviously, but I had an offer to come back to my school and I like was super debating, like, should I do it? Like versus how burnt out, how burnt out I had been just based on like the experience that I briefly described earlier. I eventually left the teaching realm, but I've still continued in education up to this point um, in subsequent years. Right on, right on. All right, cool. So I got one more question. Then I want to kick the mic over to Matt, who I know has some burning questions. My question probably is, complicated might require some explanation, but maybe Andy, let's start with you for this. So can you walk us through how TFA supported your um, experience and training as a teacher? So uh, if you could maybe talk about first your pre-teaching training that they provided and then maybe get into, and then Eric, maybe you can talk about that and then we'll get into um, we'll get into like how they supported y'all when you were actually in the classroom. Um, you know, so they call that, they call that period of time Institute, like in Teach for America, which is like teacher boot camp over the course of two months or like a summer or maybe two and a half months. And right. What, what they're doing there is like teaching, like a few behavioral management techniques, like curriculum development stuff. And, and then most importantly, you're actually, uh, a teacher for summer school in, in our case at Chicago public schools um, with uh, another teacher like supervising, right? But we're, we're like actually leading a, a lesson for, for students. Now that part was kind of a blur for me. One, cause it's a long time ago, but also because the stuff that I was learning was super irrelevant because I was going to be a high school English teacher and what I was being prepped for, or what I ended up teaching in that institute summer, like as a summer school teacher, was uh, chemistry, high school chemistry. I, an English literature major, myself, that had graduated, right, getting placed to be an English literature teacher, my teacher prep was teaching chemistry, was teaching in, in summer school for a couple of months. Sounds relevant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, similar, su- super relevant as you all can literature imagine. circles, yeah, so, labs, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, like covalent bonds and uh, whatever the hell else is. I'm remembering. Yeah, yeah. So, so, Hemingway. Hemingway wrote about that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So it's kind of a blur because at the time I was like, man, like I'm really having a hard, like this doesn't seem relevant at all um, to like what I'm going to be doing. And so, I mean, yeah, I like dealt with it in that moment, but but I kind of found it pretty useless. Eric, give us the skinny on your prep, your Institute experience. Yeah. I can't believe Institute happened. Like (laughs) it is so wild to think about. And we were chatting before the episode that Andy and I were actually roommates in Chicago during our TFA experience. But the first time that I met him after reflecting on it, I remember was in my dorm room because during Institute, you stay in dorm rooms. This case, it was the Illinois Institute of Technology. So you graduate college and then you go back to some dorms. It's like restarting. 
and I was listening to to Brand New, and I remember Andy walking in and saying, "Is this Brand New? Great album!" And I was like, "Yes, yeah, let's be friends." <laughs> um, so that's one part of it is you you have a roommate, you're back in the dorms. Um, my experience was a little more relevant. I was uh, placed at a middle school, and I was going to be teaching middle school, so there was that. Um, and then you just teach math and reading um, in summer school, so. Um, like Andy said, we were taught how to sort of do a little bit of curriculum, some behavior management, um, backwards planning, and it was very much I do, we do, you do instruction. And that was totally um, different than the type of instruction that my curriculum was calling for and what like the general um, consensus was that was good science instruction um, once I learned a little bit more about you know, how to teach middle school science. Um, so I would say really, if it did anything for me, it was just getting me in front of kids, um, and some of those behavior management techniques and just like knowing that I, I had, even if it was just five weeks, like some experience under my belt, um, uh, before starting, you know, that following September, um, or it was actually August. We started earlier on an extended track, uh, that first year I taught in Chicago. Um, so yeah, it is crazy to think about. I was 21 and in front of, you know, a classroom, um, having just graduated college, uh, and had some experience being a camp counselor, working with, with kids and middle school age kids, um, that lent to that. But you're also just, you know, teaching in the mornings, going to learn, uh, your, do your professional development in the afternoons, and then you go home and you try to grade and actually do the lesson planning. Um, so, it was a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings doing something you've never done before and arguably one of the hardest things out there to do. Yeah. Yeah. And Eric, you want to just circle back for a second, or I want to circle back for a second. How, what was the TFA support like when you were in the classroom? Um, and I don't necessarily mean directly from your school, although that could be relevant, but like, um, TFA as an organization, did they provide additional support while you were there? Yeah, so everyone has a manager um, in Institute, you know, uh, you have a manager as well. I think it was called a CMA, a lot of acronyms. Can't remember what that one was. Um, and, you know, they're just also doing everything they can to get get you through these five weeks. Um, and so they're in your classroom regularly observing, having debriefs with you. Um, they are alums or mate. I think that I think they're alums, you know, not not just finishing their first year and coming back and doing this. Um, so you get that support, but there's really not much that you can you can build in five weeks. And then you also have a, a manager, which largely determines your experience. I I believe in retrospect of um, TFA and your core experiences. What is your relationship like? How effective is your your manager? Um, they were called MTLDs. And so, um, you know, they were coming to observe probably once a month, bi-monthly, um, doing debriefs with you, working with you on these Saturday professional developments that we had to have, um, genuinely, generally being there to support you uh, in various needs. Um, so that looked different, I think, from core member to core. What about for you, Andy? Yeah, so um, I had a pretty terrible experience with both, uh, with both like my institute manager and with my like regular teaching assignment TFA manager. What so like because I was teaching chemistry, 
my institute manager, like they knew that I was also going to be teaching um, English, like come the start of the semester. And so they were kind of just like, yeah, like I can't like. I can't really give you any tips on how to be an English teacher. And like, it seems pretty, like a pretty big waste of time for me to give you like science teaching techniques if you're not actually gonna become a science teacher. And I was like, yeah. And so for them, the calculus was, I'm gonna spend more time with like these other teachers who are actually gonna be science teachers and kind of not even really give you any real coaching or instruction as this five week uh, chemistry teacher. And I didn't know any better. So I like, didn't like, I just kind of like, was like, okay, I guess that's like, that kind of logically makes sense, but I'm getting like the biggest, like the shortest end of the stick in that deal. And then um, come my actual teaching assignment where I'm teaching uh, reading my first year, my manager, like, so Eric said he had his manager come bi-monthly or, you know, at least once a month. I think I saw my manager twice throughout that whole academic year and so she came once to observe my class observed what i described to you students sitting in stools with clipboards with me with no prepped curriculum and was just like oh they're like they're like maybe kind of reading a couple of books you seem fine like I, and she didn't like light a fire under me or like tell me that that was wrong or like this shouldn't be the case. Like she was like, you seem like you got it under control. And I was like, I actually, like, I don't know how to write a curriculum. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you like come through and we can like schedule something. I think I maybe like outside of the two times she came to observe my classroom. I think I met up with her once to like do curriculum planning. And that was like hard air quotes. Yeah, hard, yeah I'm, do, I'm doing hard, hard air quotes, quotes for curriculum planning because, <laughs> like, um, it was only for an hour because she was like so busy or whatever the case was. And I, I there was really like, what can you do in an hour for curriculum planning when like that's my entire like teaching situation? And like, then there's going to be no follow-up afterwards. So yeah, it was, it was pretty miserable and pretty terrible. And like, I wish she would have been the one to be, to, to be like, this isn't okay. Like you shouldn't, like there should be no classroom that has this because managers were previous core members, right? And so my manager had previously been an English teacher. And so she, I think should have, you know, been the one to like raise the flag and, and sound the alarms. But in any case, like so that's that's kind of how that went for myself yeah and one one thing that I do want to note is that you know I had a really good experience with my manager um actually the math teacher in my grade level was also um supported by her so she was visiting both of our classrooms at the same time I'm sure that made it a little easier um but my experience looked a lot different um you know than Andy's than other people that my manager uh was in charge of supporting um, and they had different experiences, even with my manager, you know, they were in much more challenging situations where fights breaking out uh, more regularly. And so, you know, I, I do think also the situation that I was in allowed there to be a more successful relationship potentially with my manager. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you guys didn't have to spend as much time talking about, say, like intensive classroom management techniques um, and or in, in Andy's case, um, 
not having conversations at all <laughs> or potentially needing to have conversations about, you know, like proper resourcing of the school before even having any of those other conversations. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, just to contextualize this a bit more, I was hired at my school the second year it existed. So it's a brand new building. Um, the culture was one of compliance, um, very invested families and students. So behavior management was was a much smaller piece of the picture um, than many other teachers uh, in in the core um, that I was you know in regular contact with. Um, and so we were able to have some of those higher level conversations like, oh, what was that learning looking like? Like, how can we have a better academic conversation? Um, because we weren't having to, you know, address these other huge issues, uh, lack of resources, et cetera. So yeah, I think you're, you're totally on point with that. Matt, I want to pass the mic over to you. I know you got some questions. You've been patiently waiting. Thanks for letting me eat up some airtime. Have at it. Yeah. So it sounds like the way that uh, TFA sort of has set you guys up um, in, in many cases, you know, wasn't that successful, but I did want to sort of uh, zero in a little bit on like, what were some things that they did well with like the way that they prepared you? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we're talking about. Okay, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they didn't do this. Um, so I guess, Andy, I'm gonna throw it to you first. Like, as you think back and the way that TFA, uh, you know, did their preparation, what are some things that, that you can be like, yeah, okay, that, that was good, that was good, that was good, I can appreciate those things. I think one thing that they like, that I think they did well, and it, it's like not necessarily related to like teaching per se, but I think that they like had a good handle over like corporate leadership jargon, to be honest. And I feel like they, you know, they preach like be, being a being a leader and not just a teacher. And I think that they, I think they, at least in, from my perspective, did that pretty well where um, they kind of, teach you to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, like out of necessity because you don't have any resources, um, yeah. right? But again, that's, I, I, I still kind of think that's probably, like it's it's a problematic premise to start from, but it was a valuable tool set for me to learn, of, like to, to be resourceful and to like have an entrepreneurial spirit in terms, you know, in like as a, as a classroom teacher. I think that they also like the, the framework of I do, you do, you, we do, like, and just only sticking to that specific um, learning framework and for having teachers employ that in their classroom. I think that's like simple to grasp. And so at least for me, it was, it was something that I could like very easily template out or sketch out. Um, so maybe, maybe those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I was my I was gravitating towards uh, similar things as Andy, which is they also taught us in an I do we do you do um, in terms of practicing these teacher moves, you know, in our trainings or, um, you know, getting to practice those during the our institute. Um, so we sort of had the basics um, in terms of being able to go in there and say, OK, I know what it looks like to do an exit ticket. I know what it looks like to have an objective and backwards plan from that. Um, so in so far as you can get anyone ready for one of the most challenging jobs in the world in five weeks, you know, I think they, they did make the most of the, that time during Institute. And then, you know, my manager was a math and science middle school manager. Um, and so I was part of a group of other 
uh, a cohort of other math and science teachers um, that we met up with regularly, that my manager was sharing resources between. Um, and she was able to add a lot of value that just I was not going to be able to bring that first year and second year um, because I was really just cutting my teeth on some of the basics. And so, you know, when we talk about what uh, TFA is hoping to accomplish, even with those, those two years um, that a core member might stay in the classroom, that they want transformational change, uh, which was one of the um, phrases that we heard a lot. Uh, really, they were talking about like getting kids on the path to college. And so my manager was coming in regularly saying, okay, like what can we do to start building this culture? Um, if, what does it mean for your students to get to college? Like, what does it mean they need to do now? And so um, just all these things that I wasn't gonna be thinking about, and I don't think, um, you know, anyone at my school was gonna be coming in and asking me about um, such as, you know, what does it mean they need to do now if they're gonna get into these colleges? Oh, it means that they need to get this score on the seventh grade high school placement test to get into these schools. Um, okay, how can we like, start to invest students in that idea or let them know that these are the things that they need to be preparing for. And so I think in one case, my manager actually gave me that presentation and said, here, you can use this. Um, and similarly, uh, as Andy was mentioning, you know, they're asking you to, to be entrepreneurial and creative. Um, you know, we were able to sort of build on top of that and think like, oh, what are the structures in our classroom that we wanna constantly use to, to build a positive culture towards these goals. Um, so I, I really appreciate that in hindsight. Yeah, and Eric, we'll uh, stick with you and then we'll swing back over to Andy. So if we think about the preparation, you know, reflecting back, what's an area that you think it failed the most? So like, okay, that, you know, unequivocally was terrible, you know, <laughs> like, like, like I wish they would have fixed that piece of their training and it would have made such a big, a, a big impact, a more positive impact. What do you, what do you think, Eric? We'll, uh, we'll stay with you, and then we'll swing over to Andy. Yeah, gosh, I think it, it really does come down to behavior management. Was one of the first things that that popped into my mind, and what does learning actually look like, um, like long term learning, not just teaching to the test. Um, so I do think that in 2011, when Andy and I did the core, there was also, this was a large belief um, within the ed reform movement, which I think TFA aligns itself with um, more charter schools, for example, um, that, you know, data doesn't lie. Like we need to make sure that they can score high on these tests. And that's sort of, there's a, a huge debate there because yeah, they do need to get a high score on that test if they want greater opportunities in the future, but also how does that test measure? Who can score well on that test? Who's that set up for? Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there was a, enough room given to like, how do we build critical thinking skills and invest students in, in learning for the sake of learning, not just that test. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that TFA 10 years later is, is doing that differently uh, because we know that um, that's important. And then along the behavior management side, um, you know, if we really care about breaking the school to prison pipeline, like we should not resemble our um, behavior management practices around the way that inmates are treated, for example. Um, and so a lot of charter schools in Chicago at the time, I'm interested to hear Andy's take on this, um, were what we call no excuses charter schools, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if TFA explicitly taught this, um, but at least during Institute, for example, it was like, how do we create um, either a point system for behavior and like reward good behavior? Um, and how do we maybe think about punishments as well and uh, like deducting from, from good behavior uh, or for bad behavior? So um, I, I think that those are two things that um, I would hope that they're doing differently and uh, they probably could have done better at that time. Thanks. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think what you would think is a given, but isn't, is prepping teachers in their actual subjects that they're going to teach. Uh, like, so hopefully you don't unequivocally fail on that, but, uh, but they clearly did. So hopefully they have policies in place now where they won't allow someone to have an experience like mine, where you will actually be prepped and like for what you're going to be teaching, what subject. Um, and then I think, um, yeah, kind of like to Eric's point. So TFA is, is pretty, um, uh, metrics and data obsessed, right? So like numbers don't lie or like we, you know, this, what's this test score? What's this exit ticket? Um, and I think, you know, a lot of those can be false positives and it doesn't really tell you like if students are having genuine learning experiences, right? And, um, and there wasn't an emphasis actually on genuine learning experiences, right? It was just, are they going to meet this 80% um, benchmark of competency, right? And it's like, and if they are, then you should you you should consider that student successful and yourself as a teacher successful. And I think that's super misleading um, because it, you know teaching, as we all know, right, isn't isn't like super binary like that. Like you you learned this or you didn't. Like it's it's that's why it's part of the, it's like an art form as well too, right? And so um, there just wasn't enough emphasis on on critical thinking and like what measuring authentic learning and engagement that's great do do either of you know uh have you contacted talked with anyone has has their program and their prep changed at all have you heard anything about that with your connections yeah so i i could probably start um for the record i've remained connected with tfa i sort of had this roundabout way where i was you know I ended up on the picket lines in Chicago during a strike early 2012. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? Like, I'm really confused. I'm TFA, but I'm also union. And like, I feel like my parents are fighting. Um, don't really understand where I fit here. Um, and so eventually I, I figured out that, you know, at least at, at my school and um, in Chicago and some other things that were going on as it related to school closures, uh, like public school closures and the opening of charter schools um, in their stead, which, uh, you know, is a whole nother conversation that we could have. Um, but Andy touched on on this earlier in terms of like um, the way in which uh, the TFA model could actually be be hurting the long term improvement of schools. Like we're bringing in people to do the best with what this limited system is, um, you know, and that that doesn't encourage us to to change the system. Um, so I yeah I flipped um, like after kind of going that direction with the union I said okay I actually like I, I think TFA is is harming this because it's harming the professionalism uh, of teachers and uh, and stepped away for a few years and then when I moved out to San Francisco. Um, a TFA alumni uh, director reached out to me and said, hey, can I just buy you coffee? And like, let's get reconnected. 
Um, and that was in TFA. And I definitely was ready to just have someone buy me a cup of coffee while I was burning out in year five in the classroom. Um, and so I have gotten reconnected and remained involved in, in TFA Bay Area out here. And I think at least something that I've heard is that there's some real-time coaching going on. I'm not sure if this is uh, a current practice, but at least in the last five years, there was like, we're going to put an earbud in coach is going to be giving you like real time direction. No, you need to like stay this, uh, say that like during Institute. Uh, I don't know if that's happening throughout the, uh, throughout the year as well, but that was something that I was like, wait, really? Like that's what's happening now. That's the direction we're going. And, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't hear anything else really about shifts that they've made. Yeah. Andy, I wanted to hear from you a little bit. I, I could empathize with, with you being in that classroom and it's uh, too small for all your students, you know, too small for the desks. Um, they had to be on stools and all of this. And then you're talking to other people in TFA and they might have a regular classroom with desks and the, the, they have enough desks for all the students and then in the regular classroom. How did you deal with that sort of... Um, feeling defeated or, or fighting the bitterness or keeping up the encouragement with, within that reality? Yeah. How did I do that? Um, with a lot of, uh, a lot of therapy talks with my roommates, like with Eric, but, uh, but, but in addition to that, um, I mean, it was hard to, it was hard to actually to stay inspired. Right. Um, and I think in some sense, my, my, ignorance of how better things could be kind of saved me. So like, I, you know, I, I was, I was thinking, okay, well, this is probably mildly bad. Like this can't be the worst it's, it could be. Right. But I mean, that's a pretty terrible situation still to be in. Right. And so like, it was maybe that kind of thinking and just not really sure where the bottom is in terms of educating students and instructing them is that kept me there that kept me afloat. But man, it was, it was a struggle. And let me tell you too, like my, my principal pulled me aside in December of my first year. So only, you know, after a couple of months of teaching and was like, your classroom's out of control. Um, your, you know, your behavior management's out of control. Your students aren't learning. Like if you don't clean this spot, clean this up by February, you're going to get fired. I'm going to have to fire you. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like you, you're giving me zeros. I'm getting no support from anywhere. And now you're giving me this like ultimatum. And so like, man, in the, like during my holiday break that year, what like, yeah, my December, 2011 was probably the most depressed I've ever been. Um, and cause I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm going to lose my job. I'm like, I'm out here in Chicago in this place. I don't know anyone. I feel, I would feel like a failure, but I was also given this impossible situation, but didn't really know that. And so, um, no, it was, it was really hard to keep morale going, but, um, uh, you know, then I don't know, like something in the way that I like dealt with that was, I just kind of turned my classroom into like, I, I made like literature circles or like reading circles in the classroom of all the stools. And then I kind of just said, you know what, a curriculum isn't going to happen here. I'm just going to get these students to read books that are on their grade level, have them read like similarly themed books and then do like book talks every time they finish and, you know, do some basic behavior management because there's no real, 
like there's nothing there's like this situation isn't going to lend itself to like you know prepping for the act or you know learning i don't reading waiting for godot or something right like this, it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything like that so i like narrowed in my focus to just reading on grade level books and doing like mini book talks and um that i found success in that but again even then that was all driven by just myself like i i was just thinking like oh what would be a way to set up this impossible situation to make it a little bit more feasible and that's what i settled on and it ended up working but um yeah it was just hard to keep morale throughout that whole thing oh i bet i bet i've heard a lot of like language as we've been talking um like military language like serve uh we're gonna be part of the core i'm gonna go meet my recruiter we got to get in boot camp. How how did that military language express itself in your TFA experience? I guess Eric. Yeah, it's a brutal question, man. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny that you used the word militaristic or you know military language. I think the word that other core members might have used was like cultish. Uh, <laughs> And uh, there was a lot of jokes. There were a lot of jokes made, you know, right from the get-go during Institute about drinking the Kool-Aid um, because there, there were these phrases in this language that it was being, you know, um, really insisted that we use or, you know, you could tell that the managers were, were really pushing. Um, and so, you know, like, I think everybody in the, in the core, which, yeah, uh, just like Peace Corps, uh, we're, we're in it to make a, a good impact or they wanted to in those two years. Um, and we're always sort of uh, stepping between like we know we're here because of TFA and like we have to go to these trainings, but also saying like, you know, that we're going to do our own thing and like they're missing big parts of this picture, like some of the realities um, that Andy was talking about that like TFA what his manager wasn't even like willing to look at like this massive elephant in the room um and uh I think there was like healthy um you know pushback or resistance against uh that one size fits all culture um that was being pushed well Andy do you want to add anything to that or did he hit it no, I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is super militaristic, cultish, right? And I think that that, you know, I'm sure it's intentional. Like, it gives them a framework to TFA, like, to operate in and to, like, have these this, like, ready-made jargon that maybe is hierarchical, maybe isn't, or, like, at least there's, like, some, there's something there to latch on. But, yeah, I think... Yeah, it's also it's also just weird to apply that to the education space, right? And then to just, like, just what kind of what kind of uh hidden or unintended effects that could that could have um you know on the core members themselves or just like on what it means for education yeah i don't know yeah i got one more question here and i'm gonna throw it over to janine um so without a doubt like tfa has like upended right teacher preparation program they they came into something that was traditionally done in school over like four years and with uh, you know a lot more structure, and they sort of have taken that and and did the five week boot camp and did all these other things and changed it. Um, and it's you know controversial to some, inspiring to others. Um, I mean, what's your thoughts on now looking back on the way that TFA has has sort of upended that that teacher preparation 
um, and and that whole system? I think that the teacher prep space is in need of innovation. I think that um, in some ways, I mean, it's it's a different model that's you know showing that you can put teachers in classrooms in this other way. I don't necessarily think it's more successful. Um, I think if anything, honestly, I'm, t- I'm I think I take like a more a more nuanced way where I say it's it's a model that's different than like the like a traditional pathway a traditional credential and then getting you know doing some hours and then getting into the classroom I think that that space is ripe for innovation I think it's also ripe for um for change too like I think honestly teachers should be thought of as you know held in the same regard and with the same respect as other professional careers like lawyers and doctors and I think that um, you know, with salaries that keep pace with those professions as well. And I think that in some ways, you know, uh, teacher prep kind of teacher prep programs and credentialing contribute to the professionalization of that. So, um, maybe I think in some ways it might be harming the chances of the teacher profession going down that route. Um, but also conversely, it's, showing a different it's at minimum showing a different path for the teacher profession that's yeah yeah um so you use the word upended you know upending has upended the tradition traditional teacher prep program model um and i don't i don't know i'd have to look at the the data i guess if it's out there to see how you know alternative certification prep programs tfa and otherwise has impacted other four-year traditional teaching programs. I'm not not sure if it has. So, um, you know, I I know that they're doing it differently, but I don't know if that's necessarily upending that other model. And so I look at that as sort of like, you know, icing on top of that. Um, In, you know, when TFA was first founded, I think in 89, you know, they started in school districts that literally just didn't have enough bodies in classrooms, like had teacher shortages. I think the justification there was pretty clear. Um, we need to have like not subs. We need to have like committed teachers for these two years. Um, and that has changed, you know, in some districts that TFA is still in um, where there isn't a teacher shortage. And that creates a number of complications as well. The other piece, uh, I believe, of the vision of, you know, TFA starting from 1989 was also getting folks that were going to eventually go into these other spaces, um, whether it was, you know, the medical field being doctors, lawyers, um, public policy, and experience, you know, expose them firsthand, like, what is it like teaching in a Title I school for two years? And what are the challenges? So that they can then, even if they, you know, one of the big criticisms is that people just stay for two years, still that they can then go into these other spaces and, you know, impact either, you know, other issue areas that also affect academic outcomes for, for students, um, or just like up the consciousness of like how dire of a challenge, um, you know, how, how dire of a situation this is, um, and sort of change the collective consciousness around teaching. Um, and I do think that it has done that, um, or I have to think that it's done that. 
um, by simply just exposing uh, people to, to public education. Um, and, you know, the, that's like a less direct impact. Um, and so I think if TFA was to achieve their mission and do it well, like they should work themselves out of existence in the next 50 years. And um, I completely agree with what Andy said. Like we absolutely need to treat teachers like any other um, high level professional um, because the work is that important. Um, we are, you know, doctors are saving lives. Teachers are making sure that, that children and students can grow into adults that can like reach their full potential. And in some cases, you know, saving lives when we look at the, the trajectory if you don't achieve academically. Um, and so until we start investing in education, like TFA is gonna continue to need to be around. Uh, it's, we're gonna continue to need a Band-Aid because we're bleeding teachers right now. Um, and so I, I do think there's like the benefits of that and then you know, the, uh, the trade-offs of the ways in which it is harming it. Last thing I wanna say on that, do I think people are deciding, no, nah, I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna major in education because I could just do TFA in four years? Absolutely not. You know, I don't think that the existence of alternative certification programs is causing people to say, ah, I'm not gonna do the, the traditional model. Um, and, but like I said, I haven't seen data on that. And just in kind of conversation with folks that did, you know, four-year teaching, that they were like, you know, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot that like, that really made a difference for me. You know, it was just getting in front of kids and learning on the spot that made the big difference. Um, but I think just in terms of getting more people into the workforce, um, it, it, it has been necessary and it, it can make a difference in the long run. No, that's a great point. And I really like that you also brought up this idea that you know, teaching really is a profession and that we needed to, to prepare people to be professionals in this field. And it's kind of like a catch-22 though. I can, I can see why TFA exists and why they go after students who are you know, top of the class, right? To bring them into the teaching field. Because unfortunately, I hate to say it, and I've witnessed it firsthand, <laughs> that all too often education majors oftentimes are not the top of the class. I think it's an interesting that you bring that up because that viewpoint is one that, that causes a lot of consternation against TFA. It's like, oh, you think that you're bringing in these smarter people and like you're better than than four-year um, prep, you know, teachers. And, um, and I think that needs to be talked about. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And there is data that, that shows that if anything, TFA teachers are just on par with uh, teachers from other um, four-year prep programs um, in those few years. And I, I think just to add on to what I was saying before, you know, the other criticism that they're just gonna do their two years and leave, um, think there's data out there that shows that that's been improving and then at least with just like my direct network like Andy included in that most of my friends from TFA are still in education I think 90% of them you know um if not in the classroom like doing something at adjacent or um you know supporting education yeah I wonder I wonder what the the teacher prep programs, the traditional teacher prep programs really need to do in order to attract the best of the best, you know, 
uh, in the field. And, you know, when I'm thinking about like your experiences, it's really interesting hearing Eric and Andy and the contrast that has happened between, you know, here you are working for the same organization, but very different um, experiences. And I'm thinking, you know, about these traditional prep programs as well. And even, you know, thinking about when I went through and I had my own friends that went through, we also had very different experiences. It kind of depended on like what kind of school you ended up getting placed at. Like we both had the same kind of training leading, you know, up to our experiences, but then the schools that we ended up being placed at and our mentor teachers really made the world of a difference um, in the end. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, have you had any experience or do you, you know, have you had, maybe you had through conversations in hearing about traditional teacher programs and then kind of comparing it to TFA, um, you know, maybe, maybe like pros and cons of both. <laughs> any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I don't know if I, if I necessarily think of any pros and cons that like we, or like anything or adding beyond anything to add anything beyond we, what we've talked about. I think, you know, I think that they're like right now, as in the, the way the state of education in the United States, right, like Teach for America, there is a, a, a gap to that Teach for America is filling. I do think that it can be like actively causing um, perceptual harm to the profession. Um, maybe not, maybe not, um, maybe the teachers like, you know, I, I, the, the, the data that Eric was referencing, I remember hearing that, I don't know if I ever actually saw the data, but I remember hearing that Teach for America teachers on average were like the same as, you know, traditional, traditional credential teachers. And right, basically the TFAers aren't actively harming student learning outcomes, right? But they're not, they're also not like raising the bar. And so, um, I mean, I think that there's some, value in that if there's a need for TFA right now, especially given teacher shortages. But I do think that, you know, in the ways that I talked about earlier, like the professionalization of teaching and like having it be like a more respected profession, I think that in some ways TFA's existence pushes that reality further away from us, right? So like ideally, so like it's a, it is a band-aid and hopefully the wound of education starts to heal and then we can rip the bit, the TFA band-aid off. Um, I don't know if we'll get there. No. <laughs> if I had one wish for TFA and Wendy Cop, I don't know if you're listening. Um, I'm sure she's a regular listener. I tweet, I, <laughs> I tweet at her all the time. What's up, Wendy? <laughs> um, is that they would acknowledge where they fit into the larger education system and these impacts that Andy's talking about because they've conveniently uh, through many steps of the way, I think been able to say like, we just care about good teaching and student outcomes, right? And that's a really, like who doesn't? <laughs> Nobody, nobody's getting into this work because they don't want students to achieve. Um, but it's these indirect impacts um, that I think TFA needs to reconcile. And while they continue to exist and while they continue to be a necessary Band-Aid, which is my official stance, it's not clear um, right now, that um, you know they can still make this right by advocating for um, the increased professionalism of, of education, you know, whether that's higher teacher salaries, you know, better benefits, other changes that um, can you know, impact the way teachers are able to stay in the classroom. Um, and take ownership over these kind of 
negative impacts that they are making while they continue to exist. Well, it sounds like I think we all agree that at least CFA serves some kind of purpose here, at least with, especially in the situation that we're in right now with teacher shortage. Um, it seems like a necessity almost. <laughs> but I'm wondering if, um, all right, let's just, just let's just play what if, you know, like what if, what if you could design your own teacher preparation program? Are there elements from TFA that you would take along with it, or are there, or what would what what would you pull in maybe from a traditional program, or you know maybe this is a big what if question, but you know if you could do it all over again, you know what would you want your teacher preparation to be like? I'm into the what ifs just for the record. <laughs> the hypotheticals is where I live. What first came to mind is like a greater explicit teaching around humility and like that we're coming into these spaces that like we just there's so much that we don't know about um in my case like different race you know um different socioeconomic class like I don't know what it's like to grow up in the neighborhood I was teaching in um and so if there was more instruction at least you know with a teacher prep program that's sending teachers into title one schools like low-income schools um, that there was more uh, coaching and instruction around how to engage parents um, and more uh, thought, like I said, around what do I not know and like who can I talk to or who can I uh, partner with to make sure that I'm doing right by the students in my classroom. Like, because my classroom is also going to be unique from, you know, another core members or, you know, even my manager, things like that. So more um context i think around the work that that we're doing and it isn't just you know designing a really good lesson plan and assessing really well like there's so many other things that are playing out in the classroom that weren't talked about during our, our teacher prep that's good i like it andy what do you think yeah for myself um yeah i definitely agree with eric's right like more cultural awareness in terms of race and class for sure um you know, and I think Teacher America has probably gotten better at recruiting more diverse core members. Um, but even at the time, right, I was only one of a handful of Latino TFA core members there. And so like, there wasn't even like a community necessarily for myself to build around in addition to all of the hardships I was talking about. Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely think that. Um, and I mean, I think having a uh, maybe like one-on-one -on -one time with a you know like a another like a mentor teacher where it's like happening i think maybe i don't know how frequently but definitely like multiple times a month for sure where they're in your classroom and like really helping you lesson plan helping you behavior manage helping you like with different like actual instructional techniques i think that would be that would be probably the most helpful is be as going through a credential program, maybe like witnessing that and then also having that be the case while you're going through your program. And then as part of the program, maybe it's like a, a mentor teacher sticks with you and you do kind of a soft landing until you're like on your own or something. So maybe something, maybe something like that. I really like the idea, especially of the, the bringing it back to really knowing your students, right? Like I, I think back to my own time that, you know, it was all about, you know, make sure you know the content, make sure you know the curriculum, make sure you have classroom management, but really like none of that matters if you don't know your students. <laughs> like
well. <laughs> and I really know. Yeah, I'm into that 100%. I think um, in the context that I'm teaching right now, if you don't know students here, then you're not going to be successful. And I think that that context is easily extrapolated to any classroom. It, just to what Eric was saying, if you don't spend time getting to know your students and your families, then you know, learning is a, is a process of failure and complication and questioning. And if you're not developing an air of trust with the people that you're helping on a day-to-day -day basis, then no one's ever going to learn, right? You're certainly not going to learn. Parents aren't going to trust you. Students aren't going to trust you. And that process is all around vulnerability and all around trust and super challenging if you're not developing those relationships. Um, Okay, Eric and Andy, we always have a little reflection time in our episodes, a space where we like to think about what this conversation is making us think about education in maybe a new way or reminding us. And um, us hosts, we will definitely reflect. Y'all are more than welcome to reflect along with us. Um, Matt, you've been quiet down there for a little bit now, and uh, I know you got some good thoughts coming out of this conversation. What's on your mind? And we'll go to Janine next. Yeah, I think this conversation has been really helpful. I think it's been nuanced. Um, so it's been really interesting. Like in one, in one sense, it's like, oh, they did this wrong or whatever, but then it's like, okay, but they like elevated this. So I really appreciated that. Um, one thing that that just popped to my mind to the forefront was I think something Andy said was, uh, yeah, like teacher prep is right. This is an example of the nuance, like teacher prep is ripe for innovation. TFA innovated it, but I don't think their innovation uh, achieved any better end product. Um, and I, so that that's sort of uh, sticking with me right now, the reflection. That's just an example of sort of these conversations, you know, TFA. Here's another example. TFA uh, encouraged people to be resourceful. But then within that, people are living and, and dealing with situations that they shouldn't deal with as a professional. So again, that nuance going back and forth, and it's a lot of complexity. Um, and, and I've appreciated that from this conversation. Uh, there are a couple like well, things that uh, Andy and Eric kind of said that stuck with me. Um, I think Andy mentioned something about irrelevant training, like I go into the, <laughs> the Institute and there were, you know, just how often do we do that to our, you know, future teachers here that they, we put them through some irrelevant training. I, I mean, I can, I can even think of some courses that I ended up having to take along the way. And I'm just like, this isn't relevant to what I'm actually going to be doing. And especially, yeah, current teachers too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how, how often do you have to take, to participate in professional development and it's not relevant to what you're actually doing. So I don't know, maybe rethinking some things around that. Um, and then I think also too, you mentioned um, like, the co like a cohort model. And um, Andy, I think you also had mentioned something about like your therapy talks with Eric here and that being able to bounce the, your, you know, <laughs> connect with somebody over your, like a shared experience. Um, like, I wonder if that could be a piece of future teacher preparation programs. Like that idea of really like going through, working with a group of people and sharing in that experience. I, I was lucky enough to, um, when I was student teaching, I went to, uh, that, myself and a, a few of my, my friends were 
like in a cohort kind of situation where we were at the same school. So we were able to connect with each other. We had, we had shared experiences and I think it just made it easier to kind of like get through it and like understand the situation more and, and all of that. I wonder how often um, teacher preparation programs are kind of using a, a cohort model in that sense, or like how often, um, you know, schools are open to having multiple student teachers in their building at the same time so that they can have that shared experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Andy, what's on your mind? What's this conversation making you think? Uh, just rehashing. Um, it's giving me a post-traumatic stress. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, no, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we should uh, we should have like a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode, right? Anybody who's gone through Teach for America or been in super under-resourced schools with really challenging clipboard-esque classrooms, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it's making me think, right? Of of everything that we're talking about, like what can the future of teacher uh, sort of what, what what can the future of teacher certification look like? Um, how can we make it more holistic so that we're you know we're elevating the profession while also dealing with the realities of it existing right now? Um, and yeah, I mean it, it's that's basically just where my mind goes, and it's I'm. I'm actually a little bit more hopeful. Like I've been feeling kind of down and outs in the um, in education lately. Um, but the fact that we're able to like create this space and then have this podcast, and even you all just having the Rethinking EDU podcast, gives me a little bit more hope that you know the education candle is still burning, and there are people out there still in all sorts of ways, you know, trying to trying to improve uh, uh, education for the betterment of students. So. Yeah. Right on. Eric, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, just like the last thing that Annie said, I think with the current state of things, uh, it's been hard to be hopeful about the future. Um, and this is a good reminder that there's a lot of people that are really, really passionate and care and are going, you know, over and above um, to make sure that they can, you know, push educational equity forward. Um, so it's really, really great to be here. And this conversation was just a reminder for me of how complex these issues are. Um, I think people sometimes call them wicked problems when they are just like these big, massive problems that are never going to be solved. They can just be managed. Um, and this is just a constant reminder. You know, every answer that I've had today, as soon as I've said it, another consideration comes to mind. I'm like, oh, but what about the other part of this? And I think that that's totally true. It's something that needs to be remembered by anyone who comes into the education space thinking like we have the answers. Um, I mentioned humility earlier and just um, making sure that you know that there's a lot that needs to be considered here. Uh, that differentiation is really, really important you know, for a classroom, for a school within a school district, for a school district within a county, a county within a state and so forth. Um, that there is no silver bullet to this, um, but that getting more people involved is really, really important. Um, and I was just talking with my partner this morning and, you know, she's in her you know, second year in the pandemic, um, ninth year, I believe in the classroom. And she's like, yeah, I think I need to get out of here. And it's, there's just so much, um, you know, guilt involved in that. Um, but this reminder occurred um, to both of us that, there's another generation coming up right now. There are more people that hopefully we can get into this fight for educational equity. Um, and as insofar as Teach for America and other teacher prep programs go, like 
yeah, let's get some more people in, into this fight um, and continue to, to have faith that, uh, you know, more people fighting for this is going to eventually lead to better outcomes. Um, but we got to be talking about it. <laughs> Y'all are so hopeful. Dang. You know, I listened to like all your reflections and I've been thinking a lot recently about how unhopeful I have been about teacher preparation and about people leaving the classroom. You know, there's a staggering statistic that 10 years ago in uh, Pennsylvania, there were about 20 to 22,000 people graduating from teacher preparation programs and moving into classrooms. And just this last year, there were something like right around 7,000, you know, Um, and that dramatic decline is going to hit us hard real quick if it isn't already in schools. And what this conversation is making me think more than anything is that we need to elevate the conversation in every way, shape, and form possible across all of the spheres that we possibly can, because it needs to change. And it needs to change with um, with like purpose, but also quickly because we're going to run into a more serious problem faster than I think we're even realizing. And so this conversation reminds me that TFA is one route in which um, individuals who know a lot about education, who've been around for a while, have tried to push education forward. And I am thinking that we need others to be so brave to push education forward in ways that could make sense even if they're not 100% right. Um, You know, we've been exploring educational reform with lots of money for probably about 30 or 40 years, right? And um, if you just look at some of the recent funding that TFA has brought in from the various foundations, you know, including huge grants from the Walton Foundation, right? Then that money is going directly into creating a space that I know TFA is very concerned about and its evolution is showing it so, but um, that amount of attention is something we need to bring at the national level and at the local level and at the super duper local level, you know, so we're all having a conversation about the value of education. I think we're at a point in, I think we're at the point in uh, our examination of schools and schools' relationships with communities that um, requires us to have a sort of like take all the gloves off kind of conversation. And if we're not going to have that, then I think we're going to run into just more, more and more problems. This is what we're having when it comes to critical race theory. There's all these conversations talking about critical race theory in schools when critical race theory doesn't even really relate to what's going on in schools, right? And yet we're still, people are still out there talking about it, but we're not having a real conversation about it. There's no one leading that conversation. And I think um, it's, it's problematic. And this is another thing that I think requires intention and requires discussion and requires attention. Otherwise, kids are going get to get left behind. And sadly, we already know who uh, that's going to over, overly affect. Low-income Black and brown kids across the country are going to get left behind. We know that to be the case. And we need to make that change now to better help those kids and all kids. 
So that's my little end of the, uh, you know, little whatever conversation soapbox thing, whatever, but not quite the end of the episode because we want to give Andy and Eric a chance to plug something, something that they've been reading, watching, listening, um, anything along those lines. And then listeners, we hope that you'll pop over into the think tank and have a listen to our little follow-up conversation that we'll have. So a little bit more unbridled than this conversation, but let's go Andy first. Andy, what's a TV show, a book, um, a, a, a meal that you've been making? What would you like to plug? I will plug two things. One I will plug is uh this book that I just read called um, What Strange Paradise by, I believe it's a Egyptian Lebanese American author. His name's Omar El Akkad. It's about the refugee crisis um, that's still going on through today, but it was inspired by the 2015 photo of the, of the little boy that was a refugee that died and washed up on shore with a lot of other refugees, but it's taken the viewpoint of if that kid lived and um, what you know, what happened to him afterwards, but it's a very humanizing novel. It's very heartbreaking at the same time, but beautifully, beautifully written. What Strange Paradise um, really reminds you of just the human experience and what it's like to be human. So I highly recommend reading that to everyone. Um, and um, the other one is my, I'll plug my, not my in post-development podcast called Cafecito, um, uh, with Alex and Andy. Um, it's about navigating the um, young professional workspace as a BIPOC individual. And so um, it's, we haven't launched any episodes yet, but we're still like in post-development. We're like getting everything worked out, but we've recorded tons and tons of hours of stuff. And so look for that to drop at some point anywhere, dear listeners. Eric, what would you like to plug? Uh, I can't wait to listen to Cafecito. Uh, this is the first that I've heard of it, so really excited that you're doing that. And um, yeah, I wanted to plug this idea that kind of came to me as we were wrapping up that discussion and something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, it's the idea that if we, idea if we fully funded education tomorrow, you know, and paid teachers the salaries that they deserved, we had all the support, you know, staff that was needed, school counselors, so forth. Um, to achieve educational equity, like we wouldn't have the people um, in the classrooms to do it. it it's going to be a, a decades-long shift if we were to change those things. That you know, the next generation grew up saying, "Oh, like that's a, a profession I can sustain myself in, both monetarily and like emotionally." Um, you know, if we're changing the system so that people can still like get home to their families and and live like a healthy life, uh, as opposed to you know, having to uh, be a martyr, um, that uh, that will happen in due time. Um, but as we were talking about, there are still teacher prep programs earlier. So if you are looking to make an impact, um, you know, and you like working with kids, or this is something that you've been thinking about for a while, like really consider um, teaching. Like we really, really need teachers right now. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but we're currently dealing with Omicron variant and schools are just literally shutting down because there's not enough teachers. Um, so we need more people uh, in the classroom. So I guess that's the first plug. <laughs> and then the second one, I just looked over, I was like, what should I plug right now? 
I've got um, All About Love by Bell Hooks on my nightstand. It's something that I've been reading for a while because I am uh, not a big reader. Uh, but whether you're a man or a woman or non-binary, uh, it talks about you know patriarchy and the impacts that that has on our relationships, but also on systems. Um, and so I think you know, our fight for educational equity will also be one that is one not to be too cheesy, but in our hearts, you know, we have to uh, sustain ourselves and take care of ourselves um, and figure out, you know, how that fits into our part in this in this work. Um, so, all about love by Bell Hooks. May she rest in peace. Just passed away recently. Um, I'm on my last chapter, uh, and I can't wait to finish it. That's awesome, Matt. What you got to plug today? Uh, the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. Just finished it. It's really. Uh really mind-blowing he has a lot of important things in that book and in his other work his newest book uh a world without email which uh is a world i want to live in sounds like my dream and uh, <laughs> the second thing i want to plug is uh it's an old movie but i think there's a lot of parallels to our conversation tonight the descendants uh with george clooney you got to listen to this conversation and watch that and see those <laughs> parallels exist Right on, right on. Okay, I'll I'll go along with that. I'll go along with that. Um, I plugged Mike Rose in our last conversation, and I've been reading a lot by him. Um, and I think that uh, you know he passed away recently. He was a, a, a literature instructor and a writing instructor at um, UCLA for a number of years. And his groundbreaking work is Lives on the Boundary, and that's. Um, kind of where I'm at uh, with my reading. I just started. It's uh, amazing so far. And I also um, recently finished his book called Why School, which is uh, subtitled Reclaiming Education for All of Us. He kind of goes through a bunch of different topics in education um, that are, uh, I think, useful to think about. I think his, it's interesting. He didn't write that book that long ago. Um, I think it's 2014. And yet so much has changed in education in the last, you know, seven, eight years that um, some of his stuff is already dated and it's crazy to think about. You know, he talks about uh, massively open online courses or MOOCs in there and how those might have a potential impact on education. And we're already seeing sort of the way or the peak and valley of MOOCs in education even right now over the past um, seven or eight years. Well, listen, Andy Alcaraz and Eric Sarb, it's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Um, listeners, it's been wonderful that you've dropped by to hang out with us and and listen to what we got going on on Rethinking EDU. We appreciate your patronage and head on over to patreon.com slash Rethinking EDU. Hit us up with a $2 a month donation and you can get access to the Think Tank, which is our behind the scenes conversations with our guests. Janine, Matt, as always, it's been a pleasure. And listeners, keep rethinking EDU. Thanks.